beginning in verse 16. So I invite you to find your way to Matthew 28 and verse 16. You'll find that on page 835 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you just to grab the one in the pew rack, and that will be our gift to you. Uh, we trust that God's Word will be profitable to you. While you're finding your way to Matthew, I do want you to take out this insert that you found in the bulletin when you came in to our auditorium. It says, I commit to pray. And on the back side, it tells you ten ways in which you can pray for the persecuted church. And so we are going to uh, begin a, a week of prayer, really. We're going to begin uh, setting aside a time to remember that we have brothers and sisters across this world who are suffering for their love for Jesus. We are called by God to intercede for them. And so I hope that you will commit yourself to prayer during this week, whether it be the daily email or praying in your community group or gathering on Thursday during our time of prayer and fasting or Saturday night and again on Sunday night and Sunday morning, that we would lift up our brothers and sisters in prayer. And I hope you will use this as a guide to help you. I also want to let you know that on Sunday we will be taking up an offering in support of the persecuted church. And we are going to send every dollar that we get to a number of organizations which will purchase Bibles and get them into the hands of Christians in closed countries. You can, well get this, for three dollars, you can put a Bible in the hand of a believer in a closed Muslim nation. Isn't that extraordinary? We take the Bible for granted. One of my kids asked me this morning, Daddy, how many Bibles do you have? I said, I have no idea. She says, I bet you have a million. I don't think I have that many, but I have a lot. Right? We take it for granted. I mean, it's just everywhere. It's on our phones and our computers. And there are people who are burning their Bibles right now in Iraq or burying them out back lest they be found by ISIS. We could help them. You could help them. I pray that you would be willing to do so. In fact, why don't we help them through prayer even now? I would like to draw your attention to the screen as we consider one of our brothers who is suffering for his faith. I saw a group of security personnel running around in the market with guns. They put a black cloth on my face and they tied my hands. I really started to fear. I started to pray to the Lord in my heart and pray, Lord, these people do not know you and these people will do anything that is inhuman. They will definitely beat me. The police inspector tried to intimidate me again and he told me that I will drink this wine and when I get drunk then I will start, you know, beating you. to Christ, they actually buy color from the society. They are not allowed to drink water from the wells, or they are not allowed to work in their field. So please pray that Satan will not discourage them from serving the Lord. There are so many difficulties and hardships in ministry. There are threats from all around. Please pray that the Lord will give us grace to serve Him faithfully. If the Lord is with us in our ministry, we would need nothing. So, please pray that our ministry will grow and that many will come to know Christ. Many villages will know God's love for them. Our Father, we want to call out to You even now on behalf of our brother, Pastor Roshan, and hundreds of thousands of other Christians who because they love Jesus, suffer greatly. 
We who live in unimaginable freedom and liberty here, let it not blind us to the world, the difficulty and suffering that Christians face. This has been promised to us. Our Lord said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you also. The world will hate you, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so we rejoice that our Lord has risen from the dead and has victory. And now we ask you, dear Lord Jesus, to use your power on behalf of your suffering family. That you would enable him, even as our pastor, has, our pastor brother has asked us, that to enable them to serve you with grace in their hearts in the midst of hardship and difficulty. And that by their love, many would come to know you. That they would turn from their persecuting ways, their hate-filled ways, and see beauty and majesty and grace and mercy in Jesus. And so do this work. Help us this week. I pray for us. I pray that that we wouldn't go through our week ignorant of what's going on around this world. I pray that we just wouldn't show up on Sunday morning a week from today and be reminded, oh yeah, I was supposed to pray this week. Father, help us to take this seriously. Help us to be burdened. Help us to call out for help and aid. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hopefully by now you found your way to Matthew chapter 28, and we'll begin our time in God's Word this morning in verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16. Hear now the Word of God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Father, we thank You for Your Word in which we can now set our hearts upon. We ask that You would help us and equip us to know it well, to apply it to our lives, and we pray that we would be changed through it. So come do this work in us individually and as a church for Your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on November 1st, 1861, that General George McClellan was chosen by President Lincoln to be the general-in-chief commanding the Union Army. General McClellan was an obvious choice, and that day you could not have hoped for a better general. He was brilliant. He, if I understand correctly, remains even today to be the youngest man ever accepted to a U.S. military academy at the age of 15. He would graduate second in his class. He did not graduate first because he had poor sketching skills. They thought him to be the young Napoleon because of his incredible strategic mind. And even more than that, he was loved by the troops, instantly created high morale, increasing the size of the Union Army by 300% in a matter of four months. His army would outnumber the Confederate Army by the size of two to one. He had education, he had talent, he had experience, he had his troops' love, he had a massive army. And there's one thing, however, that McClellan lacked. One thing that he didn't have. And that was a willingness to fight. He would get them ready to fight. He would position his troops, he would organize them, he would create elaborate strategies, but he would never take them into battle. I mean, the Confederate army would be miles away, it would be exposed to McClellan's troops, but he would not push his troops on, despite Lincoln's repeated urging to use the numerical advantage they now enjoyed to crush this rebellion once and for all and end this war. He would not do so. In fact, Lincoln is said to have told his top generals, if General McClellan does not want to use the army, I would like to borrow it for a time. He wouldn't do it. If a soldier is unwilling to fight, what good are his other talents? 
After a painful year of inactivity, Lincoln removed the greatest military mind of his generation and replaced him with a man that had one-fourth of his tactical ability but would fight anyone, anywhere. General Ulysses S. Grant. McClellan kind of reminds me of the danger that churches face, American churches in particular, that we can have wonderful ministries and engaging messages and heartfelt music. We can have beautiful buildings and full bank accounts and a great love for our community, and we can have all this and more, and it would be useless if it did not, if it's not used to fulfill what the church was created to do which we're told here by our Lord in Matthew 28, verse 19, to make disciples. No matter how good we are at everything else, if we don't make disciples as a church, we, we fail in the mission in which God has given us. And so may I simply remind you this morning that Jesus never told us to have Sunday school class or women's ministries or men's conferences. Jesus never told us to have youth groups or children's programs. He never told us to build buildings. In fact, the one religious building they had in the day, he ransacked. He never told us to build colleges, seminaries. He never told us to have conventions, denominations, hold conferences, build websites, send out colorful brochures. Jesus never put an ad in the paper or sent out mailers announcing he is coming to town. We do all these things. And Jesus never told us to do one of them. Now, don't, please don't misunderstand me. Not that these things are bad. But they are only good as long as they help us to do the one thing He called us to do. To make disciples for the glory of God. And I think quite often what happens is that the church misses its goal and and the church begins to evaluate whether it's fruitful or successful by the size or the amount of people that show up for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. And the, the church, what it tries to do is get a larger part of the Christian pie in its building on on Sunday mornings. And the focus becomes not making disciples, but it becomes church growth. We just want to grow. We want to grow. We want to grow. And if you want to grow, well, you know what you need? You need, you need to have a performance on Sunday morning and you need an engaging speaker and he would be good if he's funny and has short sermons. That would be helpful. Right? And it would be nice if you have a good, powerful band and a motivating uh, performance there and everything would be powerful and effective. And if you're going to have a performance, you're going to need a place. And so we'll have to build buildings and they'll be comfortable and lovely and easily accessible and, and very nice and convenient. And why, why you got the people here that for the performance in the place, you might as well have some programs for every age and every life situation that we could have programs for every single one. And if you're going to have programs, well, it's best that they're run by professionals. And so we get hire professionals and train up professionals who come and and run these programs. And and we sometimes say, perhaps to parents, for example, why don't you bring your kids here and, and we'll make disciples out of them. Don't try this at home, right? We're the professionals. And so David Platt, I think, rightly says... Warns churches have become the place where you enjoy the performance and you're served by the programs run by the professionals. There's a problem with that model. It's a slight one. It's not biblical. It's not found in the Bible. Rather, the church is described page after page after page as a community of people who are drawn together, sharing life with one another through the new covenant and the grace they have received who are sent on a mission by God to make disciples. The church was never in the Bible a bunch of people who sit in a room on nice pews for an hour on Sunday. That's foreign to Scripture. It's not found anywhere in Scripture. It is a people of God empowered by the Spirit of God to fulfill the mission of God for the glory of God. And I appreciate our Lord when He comes to His high priestly prayer in John 17. And if you remember, this whole chapter is the prayer of Jesus and this beautiful prayer in which He's just laying out His heart to the Father right before He's crucified. 
And he gets to verse 4 of that prayer and he says, Father, I have accomplished everything you have sent me to do. And then for the rest of the prayer, he goes on to describe what is it that he's accomplished? What, well, what has he done? What did the Father send him to do? And we kind of expect him to say, well, you know, I cured the blind and I, and I healed the, the lepers and I raised the dead and I fed the thousands and I walked on water and I calmed the storm. We expect him to say, you know, I preached to thousands of people. I mean, there's tens of thousands of people coming to my church. It was this big, massive mega church and they were all coming and, and gathering to hear me. They wanted to hear me. And we expect him to say all the miracles and all the, the powerful ministry in which we we rejoice in, and rightly so. But you notice Jesus doesn't say any of that. He doesn't mention it a single time, but what He does do 40 times in John 17 is He mentions the 12 guys who've been following Him. I've accomplished everything You've given Me to do. i got 12 guys. And one's trying to kill me, by the way. That's what i got. Three years into this. I have really 11 guys and they think like me now and they serve like me now. At least they're getting there and they love like me now and they want to live like me now. They are His disciples. And then He gathers them together right before He goes to heaven. He says, guys, I want you to do something for me while I'm gone. I want you to make disciples. I want you to do what I've been doing for the past three years. In fact, John will tell us in his Great Commission verse that Jesus will say, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Make disciples. This is the mission of the church. Now, that is a very broad mission. There is a lot included in making disciples. So don't don't reduce it to evangelism, though it includes that. We'll cover that in a moment. It is much more expansive and robust of a mission. But it is our mission. And I would like to consider that mission with you today. And as you know, we have been thinking about the church. This will be now the the last time we're in this series. For the last seven weeks, we've been considering the church. And it was uh, seven weeks ago that we talked about um, the new covenant in which we received and that we have all received grace by God through the new covenant. And if we've all received grace, that means we are all sinners If we're all sinners, that means there is no perfect church, right? And so we need to come into church realizing there's no perfect church. A lot of people are looking for the perfect church. This is why they move churches every two or three years. A lot of pastors looking for the perfect church. This is why they move every two years and off they go because they want to find the perfect church. If you're looking for the perfect church, you're looking for a unicorn, right? Let me just tell you, it doesn't exist. Right? You're looking for a leprechaun riding a unicorn taking you to a pot of gold. Right? You will not find it. And if you do find the perfect church, please do me a favor. Whatever you do, don't join it. Because you will mess it up. Right? Just let it be. Right? Just let it be. The perfect church does not exist. I mean, that's the whole point. We are sinners saved by grace. And so when we gather together as a community of people, we are going to encounter imperfect people, sinful people, which I kind of think is helpful for us because that actually gives you and I opportunities to do what God has asked us to do. Like, forgive one another as I have forgiven you or be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. And, and on and on we can go as we encounter one another. We help each other grow in grace as we deal with imperfect people. And then we look the second week can consider that the church is a, a community of people that we're living life together. And we conser- considered how Hebrews 10 tells us to remember, irritate one another to righteousness, to, to provoke one another to godliness. We need to have robust relationships until that we are encouraging one another. And so we consider these 59 one another's, love one another and greet one another and forgive one another and serve one another. And that we are to form this community of faith. We're to get to know each other invite people in our lives and we consider community groups as one avenue in which we can actually begin to do these things in one another's life as we can work on each other's life intersect with each other as we try to make each other better disciples of Jesus 
And so we invited you to consider and to pray about joining the community group. We have one in Hamilton now and one in just north of Hamilton. And there's one in Percival and one in Berryville. We're going to start one in Lovettsville, Waterford. We're going to start probably two in Western Loudoun in the coming weeks. I pray that you're, you're praying about that. That's one way in which you can become part of this community. And then the week three, we said, well, this community actually is defined. It's, it's defined by membership, as the Bible teaches us. And this membership is best understood as a covenant, not a contract. Remember that? We talked about the difference between covenants and contracts, right? And con- contract says, you know, I will do this as long as I get this out of it. I'll, I'll, I'm in as long as you do this for me. But a covenant says, no, 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 I'm all in. I, I'm in regardless. And we, we thought about marriage and we said, well, marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. They don't stand up there in front of everyone and look each other in the eyes and say, I will be your husband if you put dinner on the table. Right? And I will be your wife if you keep the car running and you mow the lawn. There's no negotiating of terms. They say for better or worse or richer or poor or sickness and health. I'm in. I'm in. You count on me. I am all in. And we said that is what the church is to be. A people who covenant together say we are in this together as the body of Christ. And we looked at this new covenant which we have drafted and been considering for now almost a year in which we will vote on as a church on uh, November 12th at our members meeting. I, I, I hope and pray that every single member of this church will show up at 7 o'clock on Wednesday, November 12th as we think about our church and the direction we're moving forward. And then we talked for the last three weeks, okay, if this is what the church is, what does church do? And we, we, we could go on for years what the church does. But we looked at the church baptizes, right? That's our initial identification with Christ. The church remembers the cross through the Lord's Supper. And last week we said the church responds to the revelation of God through praise. And we're going to end our series this morning in considering that the church is on a mission to make disciples for the glory of God. To make disciples. Can you say that with me? Make disciples. That's what we're doing. That is your mission. That is what God has called us to do. And we're going to look at a very familiar text here. I know you know this text. Some of you have this text memorized. And it has been my prayer that God would do something fresh in us today. Something new that he would awaken Hamilton Baptist Church with new passion and new desires and new longings and new purposes. And that maybe some of you, for maybe some of you, he may call you to make disciples not in America, but in some foreign land. He may speak to you through His Word today and say, I want you to leave this land and to go where Christ is not known. And perhaps there are some here who are not Christians. My prayer for you this week is that God would open your eyes and you might see perhaps for the first time the beauty and the majesty of, in the grace of God in sending His Son to this world to die for sinful people and be raised from the dead. And that you might come to know and delight in God. That your eternity will be changed in the next handful of minutes. And so let's think about this mission. We begin by considering, number one, we have the power of Christ. We have the power of Christ. Look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, that's an extraordinary statement there that the resurrected Lord is immediately received with worship. In fact, look up in verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them, that's the women on Easter Sunday, and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Now, this should startle us a bit. I know it doesn't because we just, we, we do this all the time. But in this day, to worship Christ would be astonishing. In fact, it was Jesus who Matthew chapter 4, encountering the devil. The devil says, listen, all the kingdoms of the earth has been given to me. I will give them to you if you simply would just for a moment bow your knees to me and worship me. Jesus responds by saying to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord God alone. Only he gets worship. And now here's Jesus walking around town in his resurrected body and people are falling at his feet and they are what? Worshiping him as he testifies to who he is by receiving it without any rebuke that he is the Lord God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God. No mere man, no mere angel, no mere created being. He's the eternal God and therefore the proper response to God is what? It's worship. 
This is how we respond to Him. And so He is receiving this worship and then He shows up with them. He gathers together on this mountain and after they worship Him in verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. I have now all authority in heaven and on earth. That's a lot of authority. He has it all. Heaven and earth. There's nothing on earth. I wish we could get this. I wish I could get this, to be perfectly honest. There is nothing on earth that can stop Jesus. Nothing on earth that can stay His hand, slow Him down. There is no authority, no, no, no parents, no police, no government, no president, no law, no military that can stop. He rules over it all. He has authority over all the earth. And not only all the earth, but He has authority, by the way, in case you're wondering, on all of heaven. In fact, we see just kind of a, a glimpse from heaven up in verse 2, or at least someone coming down from heaven. You notice it says, And behold, there was a great earthquake. This is Easter morning. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and clothing was white as snow. And, and for fear of Him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Right? And so an angel shows up and, and the guards, they're guarding the tomb, they, they start to freak out. And, and they are so scared that they don't draw their swords. They don't run away. They don't, they don't get in defensive positions. They just fall down as if they're dead. They just play dead. That's their best strategy. We're just going to fall down and we're going to play dead. They are scared. I don't know if you've ever been scared before. Occasionally I get scared. Um, I like to, when I go backpacking, I like to, to walk around at night once the, the, the sun goes down and it's pitch black. And I really like not to use a flashlight and see what, what I can do and the adventures I could come up with. And, and I was, so a little while ago, I was walking around in the middle of the night, a, a moonless night, the stars were out, and I, I heard something charging me from behind. I mean, I was just running at me. And I was scared. And I, you know what I did? I turned around to defend myself. As the squirrel scampered by, right? <laughs> but I did not fall down. I did not play dead. I mean, this is really scared. They just fall down. And you notice what the angel's doing, by the way. Is he yelling? Is he drawing a sword? Is he strutting around? No, he took a seat, right? He says, I'm going to rest over here. It's been a long trip. I'm just going to sit down. You guys mind? And they fall down as if they are dead. So when you think of angel, please don't think of, you know, feathered hair and featherly wings and nice and tranquil. And certainly don't think of fat, chubby baby in a diaper. Right? Because that's not what's going on. These men strike fear into soldiers. And Jesus has authority over thousands of them. Thousands. In fact, the Bible tells us the Lord Jesus will be revealed with heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. He has all authority. He has authority over Satan and demons and angels, over the natural universe, natural objects and laws and forces. Authority over stars, galaxies, planets, meteorites. Authority over all weather systems, winds, rains, lightning, thunder, hurricanes, tornadoes, monsoons, typhoons, cyclones, tidal waves, floods, and fires. He has authority over all molecular and atomic reality, atoms, electrons, protons, neutrons, undiscovered subatomic particles, quantum physics, genetic structures, DNA, chromosomes. He has authority over all plants and animals, great and small, whales and redwoods, giant squid and giant oaks, all invisible animals and plants, bacteria, viruses, parasites, germs, authority over all parts and functions of the human body, every beat of the heart, every breath of the diaphragm, every electrical jump across a million synapses in our brain, authority over all nations and governments, congresses, legislatures, presidents and kings and premiers and courts, authority over all armies and weapons and bombs and terrorists, authority over all industry and business and finance and currency, over authority over all entertainment and amusement and leisure and media, over all education and research and science and discovery. He has authority over all families and neighborhoods and over the church and over every soul and every moment of every life that has been or will ever be lived. He has it all. It's all his. All authority. And so whatever he's about to tell us, it doesn't matter what it is. 
It doesn't matter how impossible it is. Who's going to stop Him? He has all authority. No matter what He commands us to do, we, it will succeed. Because there's nothing to slow Him down or stop Him. This is why He's telling us this. You notice verse 19, He says, Go therefore and make disciples. Let me just switch those words for just a moment. Therefore, go and make disciples. I have authority over everything. Therefore, make disciples. You see the connection that He's drawing. I have, I have the right to demand allegiance from every person on this earth. And not only do I have the right, I have the power to make it so. And so if He has authority over everything, He can tell us to do anything. And it will succeed. It, it, isn't, it, isn't it wonderful that the mission of the church is not dependent upon what you bring to the table? Right? Or what I bring to the table. It's what He brings to the table. And He brings a lot to the table. He's coming with a lot. I, I pray we would therefore put away small dreams and worldly ambition. And that we would be willing to, to call out God. God, give us a vision for this church. Give us a vision for my life, no matter what it costs or the risk it, it, it asks. Because you have all authority in heaven and earth. And it's based upon that authority he then gives us our purpose. As we see secondly, we have a purpose from Christ. We see it there in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now I think it's important for us just to focus on for a moment that we are to make disciples. That's the mission. So please understand the mission of your life is not simply to be his disciple. That's not enough. It is rather to make disciples. We think, I am God's disciple, and I I want to be Jesus' disciple, and isn't that great and wonderful, and I'm going to learn about Jesus and follow Jesus, I'm going to serve Jesus, and we praise the Lord for that. We ought to do that. He calls us to do that, but He cannot stop there. The mission for you is not to simply be His disciple. It is to consider how you can use your life in order to make others His disciple. This is the mission He gives us. Perhaps you're here and, and you're not a Christian. And I've, I've been, had the pleasure of talking to many uh, people who, who don't claim Christ as their God. And, and often I hear the same thing. Um, people want to know, why, why are Christians always trying to convert people to Jesus? I mean, why can't you follow Jesus and, and I'll just do my own thing? And we could just live like that and be happy and coexist. And why do, why do you have to keep coming and, and trying to convince me to abandon my gods and my faith and, and follow your God and your faith? Well, there are many answers to that question. I mean, one answer is the fact that Jesus has authority over heaven and earth. And he demands every man to become his disciple. And we, we just consider that. But I want you to, to think about this. Why is it that we, we try to convince others to follow Jesus? Well, well, if we stop trying to convince others to follow Jesus, we stop following Jesus. You get that? Well, how do we follow Jesus? We make disciples. So if I stop trying to make disciples, then I'm no longer following Jesus. So if I'm going to follow him, it is incumbent upon me based upon his authority to try to convince you that it would be good for you, not only today, but for eternity, to follow Jesus. We're going to try to persuade you to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who in His great love for us came down to a sinful world filled with sinful people and died upon a cross to pay the penalty for my sin and your sin and all who would believe in Him and three days later rose from the dead and that if you would bow your knee to this King and give your life to Him, you would be saved forever. This is what we will try to convince you of because what Christ calls us to do so, we are to make disciples. And of course, when we think about making disciples, it it includes evangelism. It involves telling non-Christians about Christ. And so we must, every one of us, be evangelists. We must share our faith. Now, making disciples is much bigger than evangelism, but it is not less than evangelism. It includes that. Therefore, Christians, it is not enough to help the poor and feed the hungry or be a good neighbor or a co-worker. All that is good and important. But people don't just need good deeds and good examples. They need the good news. You need to open your mouth. And there's this, this saying that has been bantered around for many, many years. Preach the gospel always. And when necessary, use words. 
And that's cute, and, and, and I think it's very catchy. Um, but there's a slight problem with that once again. It's not biblical. God tells us to use words. He tells us to open our mouths. And we see this all over the place. For instance, in Romans chapter 10, how are they to believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone, if you will, telling them, proclaiming it to them as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach or proclaim or tell the good news. You have to eventually open your mouth and start talking about Jesus. You have to share the gospel and the plan of salvation. And I would just encourage you to weave Jesus into your conversations. You get to work tomorrow and they say, how was your weekend? And you can say, my weekend was fantastic. I spent some time considering the authority of Jesus and what that means for my life and how it impacts me as a worker here at this company and begin to talk about Christ, weave him into your, you know, I built a fort this weekend with my kids and we got together and we, we talked about how this fortress is kind of like our experience with God, how we have fled to him and he is our security. Begin to bring Christ plan on Monday mornings. You're driving to work. How am I going to talk about Jesus today? Plan. How am I going to weave him into my conversations? And when God opens the door, you might be able to share the full gospel, share your faith. And so we need to talk about Christ in order to make disciples. But he goes on and explains more fully what that entails. And in fact, in verse 19, it almost looks like there's two commands here. There's just one command, one imperative, and it's to make disciples. That's the only verb in, in this sentence. And then we have three participles. Okay. Now just stay awake for a moment. We'll do 10 seconds of grammar here for a minute. There is one command, make disciples. And then there are three things that modify that command, going, baptizing, and teaching. And this is how we are to actually make disciples. And so we begin by seeing that we're to go. Now I mentioned that's not a verb. It's a participle. It perhaps better translated as you go. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you don't have to sell everything you have and move to a different place in order to make disciples. He's saying as you go about your life, this is what you are to be giving yourself to. Of course, however, there are some people who will have to sell everything they have and go to a foreign land. And Jesus tells us where we're to make these disciples. You see that in verse 19? We are to go and make disciples of all nations, all of them. Since he has authority over all nations, he wants disciples from all nations. Every culture or ethnic group or language needs to worship him. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 49 about the Messiah who is to come. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. He wants Jesus to be a light to the nations. We are to make disciples of all nations. And when he says nations, don't think countries. The United States of America did not exist when these words were uttered. This is the Greek word ethne, from which we get the English word ethnicity. And so he is referring not to political boundaries, but people groups, which we are clans or tribes and language groups. And we are to make disciples of every single one of them. And we see them throughout the Bible, Canaanites and the Ammonites and the Hittites and the Parasites and, and all the other rites, right? And they're all over the place. And when today we would talk about the Bedini and the Lesgi and the, and the Tannies and the Zochis and the Malk. And these are the people we're to bring into the kingdom of God. There are almost 17. 17,000 people groups in this world. 17,000 of them. And Jesus says, you go make disciples of all of them. Right now, 7,000 have no access to the gospel. There are 7, 3 billion people, 7,000 people groups that don't know who Jesus is or what he's done. How, how would they find out unless someone goes and tells them and makes disciples of them? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. It's 2,000 years. What's taking so long? This is our work. This is our mission. How will they hear unless one goes and many go? 
In fact, maybe you can begin to, maybe not go. Maybe you say, there's no way I'm going. Maybe you pray about, maybe you can begin to engage even from America and pray about a people group. Maybe your community group can adopt a people group or a missionary and begin to engage and consider how you can bless that work and further that work and su- support that work. He calls for some to go, but for most of us, we don't go to a foreign land. It's as we go and it's the relationships we have. And God has put you in neighborhoods for a reason, hasn't he? And he has put your kids on sports teams for a reason. And I don't want to burst your bubble. It is not because your kid's going to become a professional athlete. Chances are that's not going to happen. You're there to meet people, aren't you? And your kids are there to meet people. Have fun, enjoy it, learn from this, but have the eyes of Christ that God has placed you in these places, this office and co-workers next to you for a reason. We we just moved to the top of the mountain, as many of you know, and we don't have a lot of neighbors anymore, which, to be honest, is kind of how I like it. I know that may sound awful, but um, we, we have some neighbors, and we love our neighbors, and we've got to meet some of our neighbors. And In fact, we have uh, one uh, neighbor down the road, and, and they invited us over for dinner about a month ago, all, you know, all nine of us, just the carnation descended upon their home and, and they invited us in their house, a lovely young couple without any children. And, and we sets dinner on the table and he says, uh, there's this like awkward pause. So like, we're not sure what to do. And I said, well, do you, do you mind if I thank God for this food? And he says, yeah, go right ahead. And so I pray a short prayer and thanking God for the food and new neighbors. And then he looks at me and he, he says to me, he says, you know what, you want to know what I believe? I said, I would love to hear what you believe. Uh, and he goes on to tell me all that he believes. And he says, I take a little bit from here and a little bit. It's like a buffet of religions, a little bit of Buddhism and Hinduism. And he's got a little bit of each. And he puts it all together and he has his religion. And then he looks at me and he says, so what do you think about that? Right? <laughs> and... Uh, to be honest, I, I, I didn't go there to share the gospel. And I obviously hope and pray that, that I would have opportunities to share the gospel. It's the first time we've got to know each other. And I said, uh, listen, uh, you know, I'm in your house and we're having a lovely time and the food's good. And maybe we could talk about this later. Right? And he says, no, I want to know. And I said, are you sure you want to know what I think about? <laughs> he said, yeah, tell me. So I told him. We're still friends. Right? Um, <laughs> But, you know, I told him, I said, I, I'm not sure that, that we justify religion by what we find helpful. I think we should probably th- look for what is true. And uh, you know what I know is true is that there was a man who lived. His name was Jesus. He said he would die, and then three days later he would get up from the dead. He did that. He appeared to 500 people. And if you can do that, well, I'm going to start listening to everything else you have to say. He told me he's the son of God and he lived a perfect life and he is going to die because I'm a sinner. And that if I trust in him, I will have eternal life. And I shared the gospel. You see, God has put me in that neighborhood for a reason. He's put you in your neighborhood for a reason. And he has, by the way, all authority when he goes. And you need to open your mouth and share about Jesus. May God give us that boldness knowing he's with us. We're also, of course, to baptize. You see that? We're to baptize. Disciples, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, are to identify themselves through baptism as disciples of Christ. They show their commitment to Christ through baptism. Let me just be brief and clear. To be a disciple of Jesus and not be baptized is in direct disobedience to Christ. And there is no other way you can read this passage. In fact, after this commission is given, you will not find a single unbaptized believer in all of the Bible. The Bible's emphatic. Whenever someone, every single one without fail comes to faith, he or she is baptized. And in light of that, I have no earthly idea why there exist so many Christians today who will not obey Jesus and be baptized. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to discuss it. You need to submit to the one whom you call Lord and do what he told you to do. And it's to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm not making it up. It's right here in the text. I encourage you to be baptized. Thirdly, in order to make disciples, we are to teach. You see that in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you to do. So note a couple things here that disciples obey Jesus, right? 
It's not teach them all that I've commanded. It's teach them all that I teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Since he has all authority, he wants all nations to obey all that he has commanded. So, so please understand, you don't get to say, okay, Jesus is my Lord, but you don't get this area of my life or this area of my life. No, he says, obey everything that I've commanded you to. It's silly to say you're my Lord and say, no, I'm not going to do that. Are you kidding me? No, he wants you to obey him. Now we're not perfect. We're striving for obedience. And this is what our hearts desire is to be people who obey him. But also notice that not only disciples obey, disciples teach others to obey. This is how we make disciples. We are to teach others God's word. And so when you receive God's word, whether through sermon or Sunday school or personal Bible study, and you come maybe even now and you're thinking, I want to know more about Jesus, pastor. Tell me about him. I want to learn about Christ. I want to know who he is. I want to follow him more faithfully. If that's all you're doing, though that's wonderful, good, and laudable, it is not enough. The word has been given to you today. Not so that it terminates in your life, but that you may take it and spread it to others. We are to teach others to obey. And so you learn in order that you may take what you know and begin to teach others what God has called for you to do. He tells his disciples to teach others. And so we are to do this. And we're to teach others what we, what we receive. We're to invite them to, into our lives and and to get to know who we are and, and, and begin to encourage them to do what God has called them to do. I love how Paul made disciples. Um, he tells us in a number of places, including 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, follow me as I follow Christ. He says, I'm going to show you how to follow Christ. Um, I, I just want you to follow me. Come into my life. I want you to begin to consider me. And I'm going to follow Jesus, and you just follow me as I follow Jesus. This is discipleship. This is what Jesus did. He invited people into his life to show them how they can obey God. And, and somehow we've lost this as, as uh, uh, the Western church. And someone says, I want to learn how to pray. You know what we tell them? We say, well, you know, the church offers a class for that. And you, it offers every two years. You sign up for the class. You can learn to pray. I mean, maybe it'd be better to say, you know, why don't we just meet for the next, you know, maybe once a week, once every other week, we can meet for the next eight weeks and I could teach you how I pray. I could teach you how I, how I intercede for people and how I keep from getting distracted when I pray and how I organize my prayers because if we will just get overwhelmed with all the requests and how I make sure that I'm not just making requests, but I'm, uh, my prayers robust. And how about I train you to, to pray and you could look at my life or someone says, I want to know how to read the Bible. How, how do you read? I mean, it's just, it's written thousands of years ago. I find hard, hard time. How do you read that? And quite often what the church does is, well, you know, I, I, I think we have a video on that, right? I think Beth Moore may have told us something about that or some other good and talented Bible teacher. Certainly Beth is one of those, but we relegate it to the professionals to go and teach people how to follow Jesus. And we were never intended to do that. I want to be better to say, listen, why don't you come and we could spend some time together and I could show you what I do when I open the Bible, what I'm looking for and the questions I ask and the keywords I'm searching for. And I could begin to teach you how to study the Bible. I could begin to disciple you. What if we just gathered together every other week and we just read the Bible together? What about you and I just get together and get a cup of coffee and we read the book of Mark? We don't have to prepare. We'll just open the Bible and read together and begin to share life with one another. That's discipleship. And I know that freaks some people out. They're like, what are you talking about? I, I can't do that. I, I, I can't. I don't know how to do You're going to have to get your act together, aren't you? I mean, that's the reality. In fact, I remember the first time some young man came up to me and said, Stephen, will you, will you disciple me? Well, I, I, I want to follow Jesus. Will you teach me how to follow Jesus? I'll tell you two impacts in my life. One, this man became one of my closest friends, even to this day. I mean, just bond instantly formed. Paul says to the Thessalonian church, you are my joy and my crown and my love. Do you have anybody like that? That man's my joy. I'll tell you this other thing. I had to get my act together quick. Because if I'm going to teach someone how to pray, I'm going to teach someone how to read the word or how to memorize scripture. You know what I have to be doing? Praying and reading the Bible and memorizing scripture. 
And I'm convinced that, that a lot of people start out following Christ and they're going fast and they're going headstrong and, and they say, give me the word and they're just loving the Lord and, and they will hit a ceiling. They will plateau if their Christianity never moves from it's just about me to rather I'm learning so I could disciple others and bring them along so that I could actually start pouring into other people's lives. And many people just hit that ceiling and they're listening to the Bible and studying it and going to sermons, but there's no massive growth in their life because they think Christianity ends with them. It is when we step out and say, okay, Lord, teach me to teach others that God begins to bless us and work in our lives. Please understand, if you get anything for the last seven weeks, this church does not exist simply to meet your needs. It meets to equip us to care for others in this world and in this church. We need to do this. This is the work that God has called us to do. I remember when I was a sophomore in college, uh, there was a man named Eric Leong who, who pulled me aside and, and I had been following Christ for a couple of years and he said, Stephen, would you like to go get a cup of coffee? I said, yeah, that sounds good. And we got a cup of coffee and I remember even in my mind's eye, I could picture it right now, he took a napkin and he drew a wheel on that napkin and it had four spokes and in the center he wrote Christ. And then under that he wrote Galatians 2.20. It's the first verse I ever memorized as a Christian. I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And he said, Stephen, what does it mean to be crucified with Christ? What does it mean to no longer live? What does it mean to have Christ live through you? And what began a year-long discipleship relationship where he taught me how to pray and to read the Bible and to, to witness, to serve. And then my junior year, he said, okay, it's time for you to start teaching. And I said, okay. And he said, okay, this is how you write a lesson plan. This is how you sit down. And here's 12 college students. You teach them to follow Jesus. You lead them. And I, I wonder where I would be today if it were, was not a man who said, I want to lead you to follow Christ and begin to make a disciple out of me. This is the work in which we are called to do. Jesus, three years, he ends up with 12 guys. That's what he does. Twelve guys who love him, who will follow him. We ought to be doing this. Mothers, by the way, I don't know. This is a special word to mothers. I know our time is, is over. Listen, I don't, want to, I don't want anyone to feel, oh, great, here's another thing I have to do. The big load of guilt now. Thanks a lot. Right? Right? God's given you a family to disciple. Don't squander that opportunity. Pour into them while they are under your roof. And, and mothers especially, you, you, with the work that you do, though they may never thank you, God sees it. You pour into those kids. You disciple them first and foremost. In fact, you, the discipling that I do doesn't even compare to the profound impact that you have upon your children. We are to do this as God's people. I have a resource for you if this is something that God is leading in your heart. I pray it is. It's called One-on-One Bible Reading. It's a book, less than 100 pages. I'll give it to you today. It's got a stack on my desk. It simply teaches you how to read the Bible with other people. It's a, it's, I mean, it's very, very simple and very profound and impactful. We need to end our time. But we would be missed, remissed if we do not consider we have the presence of Christ. Notice the end of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with us always. He who has all authority is with us always. Right? So don't think he's powerful and distant or he's present and weak. He is all powerful and always with us. When you go and you talk to people and you witness and you disciple and you pour into people, he is with you. He is speaking through you. You don't do this alone. Know this. Step out in faith. Trust him. I wonder if you would experience the presence of Christ if you begin to do things that required the presence of Christ, uh, namely making disciples. I appreciate what Paul Tripp wrote. Do we realize what we are part of? Your life is much bigger than a good job and understanding spouse and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. You are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom and shaping them into his likeness. And he has called you to be part of it. Will you answer him? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word for us. We thank you that 
you have worked in our hearts, that you have called us to this work in which you have given yourself to. I pray, Father, that we would increasingly become a church that does not rely upon programs and schedules, but relies upon one another and that we create relationships as a community of faith in which we can encourage one another and, and, and um, admonish one another and teach one another to follow Christ. Help us to be that community. Help us to be these people that you might receive glory and honor as we make disciples for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are